We are starting from Matthew 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put light... Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And then skipping forward to chapter 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honoured by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, because they love to stand in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Thanks, Lindsay, very much for reading. Let me add my welcome to some... It's um, great to see you here this morning. And you'll find an outline for the talk this morning on the back of your service sheet so you can follow where we're going. Uh, In the movie, Ready Player One, I've got a picture on the screen, uh, it depicts a future. Hands up if you've seen it. 
I think it's an excellent movie, um, worth watching. It depicts a future where the majority of people live the majority of their lives inside this complex computer game called the Oasis. Uh, using virtual reality technology, each person has an avatar, a computer-generated image of themselves, uh, through which they engage with the game and interact with other people. And for many people, their lives inside the Oasis are more real to them than their actual lives. They've lost connection with who they really are. And what's interesting is that in the game, you can create uh, an avatar, you can make yourself something very different to who you really are. So uh, you can create yourself in whatever appearance you like, whether it's bigger muscles, that's what I would like, or slimmer legs, or you can even be a different gender. Video games and social media give us this ability to project an image, to give an impression of ourselves that is not necessarily true to who we really are. But you don't need fancy technology like virtual reality to do this. It was in 2015 in an article for The Spectator magazine, James Bartholomew coined the phrase virtue signaling. So virtue signaling is about speaking or acting in a way in which my primary motivation is how I'll be perceived by others. Will I be seen? I want to be seen as a person of virtue, of good character, having the right social conscience, the right political convictions. I want to gain recognition and approval from others around me. In other words, I'm actually more concerned with who I'm perceived to be than with who I actually am. But although the term was coined in 2015, virtue signaling is something people have done for millennia. Wanting to project a positive image of yourself is, I think, a universal human tendency. Just look at what Jesus says in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 6, and it'd be really helpful to have that passage in Matthew open, whether in the Bible or on your, your phone, he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, throughout this passage, Jesus warns against being a hypocrite. And the word that he uses for hypocrite is the same word used for an actor. Jesus is warning his followers against living their lives as an act, a performance, projecting an image of themselves that is not who they really are. So that's where we're going. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father, we thank you for this record of Jesus' teaching that we have in the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for Jesus' great wisdom. Thank you that his words are living and active, just as relevant today as they were uh, on that first day when he spoke them on that mountainside to the crowds he gathered. And we pray, please, Father, by your spirits, make us this morning receptive to what Jesus has to teach us. Give us hearts that are open and willing to receive his words, to be convicted by them where that's needed, and to be changed by them. We pray for his name's sake. Amen. Okay, we're jumping into the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached. 
Um, this time last year, we covered chapter 5, and we took a while over it uh, in the lead-up to Easter. This year, again, in the lead-up to Easter, we're going to be covering chapter 6 and 7 uh, to reach the end of the sermon. As we start, let me remind you uh, what we covered briefly last year, uh, what Jesus has been teaching up to this point. So, and that's why um, Lindsay read the beginning of the sermon at the beginning of chapter 5. So it begins with the Beatitudes, those eight statements in which Jesus pronounces a blessing on the members of his kingdom and describes the characteristics of those people. So he begins, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the Beatitudes we learn, you've got to be bankrupt in order to be blessed. Members of Jesus' kingdom are characterized by this poverty of spirit. They know that they have nothing to commend themselves, nothing in themselves to commend them to God. They're broken and they're humble and they're mourning their sin. They're hungering for righteousness. They show mercy to others because they know how desperately they need it themselves. But though bankrupt, they are supremely blessed. Let me remind us, if we are members of Jesus' kingdom, if we've come to Jesus in repentance and faith, said yes to him being the Lord and King of our lives, we are supremely blessed. We are children of God. We stand to inherit the earth. We have the hope of seeing God face to face and receiving his full comfort and mercy. We will be filled, satisfied, fully One of the things Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is showing us our need. He wants us to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy. And and that, I think, is what he's doing in the rest of chapter 5 that we didn't read, verses 21 to 48. Jesus goes through a number of different areas of life, and in each one he says, I know what you've heard about how to behave, but I'm telling you God's standards are far higher. It's not just about whether you've murdered someone or committed adultery. God cares about what's going on in your hearts. So Jesus says for members of his kingdom, there's to be no hatred in our hearts and no lust in our looks, no lying on our lips, no resting on our rights and no limit to our love. Famously, at the end of chapter 5, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. As some were saying, it's an upside-down kingdom. And the aim of Jesus' teaching is to drive us to our knees, to show us how high the bar is so that we realize we can never get over it ourselves. Jesus wants us to come to him, to receive his grace. Grace to forgive, grace to transform Jesus' focus so far has been very clearly on the heart. And that focus continues in the passage today. So this section in chapter 6, 1 to 18, is a warning against acting. Now, there are members of the church who um, have signed up to be part of the Mark drama. Jesus is not giving a warning against that kind of acting. You've done a great thing, good decision, being part of the Mark drama. This is a different kind of acting. So verse 1 here sets up the principle, and then Jesus gives three examples, giving, praying, fasting. When Jesus talks about practicing our righteousness in verse 1, 
He's talking about those things that flow out of our relationship with God. So we give to the needy because we were needy and have received mercy from our Father. We pray, we talk to our Father in prayer because we've been graciously adopted as his children. We fast in order to humble ourselves as an expression of our dependence on God. So these things are meant to flow out of our relationship with God, but so easily they can become an act. In each of the examples, Jesus warns us against being like the hypocrites, people who on the surface appear very impressive, very spiritual, they're doing all the right things, but in reality, it's all for show. It's a performance. You see that in verse 2. When the hypocrites give to the needy, they announce it with trumpets. Can you imagine? In order to draw attention to themselves so that they are honored by others. That's what they're after. They're giving to the needy, but why are they giving to the needy? For the sake of the needy? No. For their own sake. In order to receive praise and recognition from other people. You see it in verse 5. We don't need that one yet. James, thanks. In verse 5, if you look down, the hypocrites love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. They weren't street preachers, they were street prayers. In order to be seen by others. That The word Jesus uses for see is the word we get theater from. It's all a performance. Verse 16, when the hypocrites fast, they deliberately disfigure their faces in order to show others that they're fasting. It's all a big PR stunt. It's all done for the praise and recognition they receive from other people. They're giving, they're praying, they're fasting. It's all an act. And Jesus is saying, don't be like that. Don't be an actor. Church is not a theater in which to perform. Be careful that you don't slip into that way of operating. You see, it's not enough for us to just do the right thing. Our motivation matters. We need to ask ourselves, why am I doing this? In particular, from this passage, we need to ask, who is my audience? And what reward am I seeking? Who is my audience? What reward am I seeking? Jesus says, be careful. In other words, this is something we could slip into quite easily. Something we need to consciously guard against. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Now, I don't know if you've spotted it, but there seems to be a contradiction at this point in Jesus' sermon. Because here, Jesus says, don't do your acts of righteousness to be seen by others. But at the end of the bit from chapter 5, Lindsay read, he said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds. So you might get to this point in the sermon and think, huh, Jesus, what's going on? I wonder if you can see how it's not a contradiction. I've got the two verses up on the screen. Turn to your neighbor, take 30 seconds. Can you work out what's the difference? Why is this not a contradiction? Go.
Did you get it? Did you work it out? It's, it's about who gets the glory, who gets the honor, right? So verse 16, let your light shine so they see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. But 6 verse 2, they're doing their giving in order to be seen by others to get the honor themselves. They're not giving the glory to God, they're taking it for themselves. So let's think briefly about each of the examples that Jesus gives and we'll unpack these ideas of audience and reward and who gets the glory. So firstly, giving. I am told that in Jesus' day, when there was a crisis, a particular need, they would actually blow trumpets in the temple to call people to come and respond and give in support of whatever need it was. And I guess the idea was that by making it public, there would be a greater motivation for people to come and give. Some years ago, I did hear about a church that that actually had a, a league table of giving up on the wall, like a chart with everyone ranked and how much they were giving. Can you imagine? I mean, how could that not breed an unhealthy, wrong motivation? At Barney's, we don't talk much about money. We don't pass a plate around. Um, no one knows whether you give or not. And there's no recognition. There's no congratulations, depending on how much you give. Uh, no one knows how much you give, or at least very few. In fact, probably only Trang, our treasurer, and she keeps that information confidential. I don't know. The other staff, leadership team, don't know. From what I do know, I understand people at Barney's are very generous in their giving. They are motivated by the gospel, by their relationship with God, and that's a wonderful thing. And I trust that you are experiencing the reward that Jesus speaks of. You see, Jesus, through this passage, does encourage us to seek a reward. Not the reward of praise and recognition from other people. If that's the reward we seek, well, we may well get it, but it will be all we get. We will have received our reward in full. But Jesus says there's another reward that we can seek, that we can receive from our Father in heaven. Now, if you're getting nervous about all this talk about rewards, it sounds like we're trying to earn something. It's a denial of grace, maybe. The key thing to understand is the reward is the relationship. If you're making notes, write that down. The reward is the relationship. As we do these things, giving, praying, fasting, these things that flow out of our relationship with God, the reward is a deeper relationship. So as you give generously, you have the reward of knowing your generous Father more deeply, reflecting His character, pleasing His heart. You also have the reward of seeing your money used, serving the needs of those you help. C.S. Lewis said something helpful about this in his book, The Weight of Glory, up on the screen. He said, the proper rewards are not simply tacked onto the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. There's some long words in there. Let me give you examples. Uh, The proper reward for cleaning the house is... Having a clean and healthy place for my family to live. It is not being able to feel superior to my neighbors. The proper reward for reading a fiction book is 
enjoying the story, not fitting in with the cool crowd who've all read that book. And so when you give money to the needy, the proper reward is the joy of seeing the needy helped and the joy of being able to reflect in some small way the generous heart of your father. Does that make sense? So Jesus is saying, don't let your giving become something you do to impress others. Don't even do it to impress yourself. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, don't keep a mental tally of how much you're giving. You know, so you can think to yourself, aren't I doing well? You know, I'm not seeking praise from others, but I'm kind of praising myself. Look at how much I've given this year. Jesus is saying, don't keep score, just enjoy giving. Enjoy being generous like your Father in heaven. Second example is prayer. Again, Jesus is attacking the hypocrites who are praying on the surface, yes, but they're not really speaking to God at all. Who are they speaking to? Their audience. The other people that they're trying to impress. And this is kind of easy to do. You can see why Jesus says be careful. It's easy to slip into this. Whenever you're praying with others, if you come to the prayer night on Thursday, which I encourage you to do, or you're praying in church, it's so easy to be more concerned with how my prayer is sounding to the others I'm praying with than actually connecting with God. I can think, oh, that was a good one. That'll get the amens going. Now, I don't think that Jesus is saying here that all our praying needs to be in secret behind closed doors. Uh, for example, you know, I don't think he's forbidding corporate prayer. So don't stay away on Thursday night for the prayer night because, no, Jesus said, into your room, shut the door, pray in secret. The prayer that Jesus gives his disciples to pray, verse 9, this is how you should pray, our Father. So it's a prayer that we pray together, corporately. And if you read the book of Acts, the early church clearly didn't think Jesus was forbidding corporate prayer because on every page you find the believers coming together in prayer. Again, I think the issue really is heart motivation. When you pray in public with other people, are you praying to be heard by others or are you speaking to your Father? And I think the test of this is whether we also pray in private. Is our public prayer the overflow, the outflow of our private prayer? Robert Murray McShane famously said, a man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. Again, the reward of this is a deeper relationship with our Father. When Jesus says, go into your room, that, that word for room can mean storeroom or even treasure room. And so, do you see your place of prayer as a place of treasure? The treasure of knowing your father, of being his child, enjoying his presence, being able to pour your heart out to him, the one who knows your needs before you even ask. Engaging with his purposes in the world. That's the treasure. That's the reward. Prayer isn't a task to tick off the to-do list and feel proud about. It's a treasure. It's a privilege. 
It's a relationship to invest in and enjoy. So how is your prayer life? How's it going? Has it kind of ground to a halt? The great thing is it's a relationship. It's a relationship of grace. And so you can always make a fresh start. And maybe that's how you need to respond today. Find a place. Find a place where you can be undistracted. Find a time of the day that's going to work. It might mean getting up early, staying up late. It doesn't have to be a long time. But it does need to be a priority in our schedules. Thirdly, the third example is fasting. Let's read from verse 16 on the screen. When you fast, says Jesus, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others their fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Fasting is all about seeking God, coming to God in repentance. Fasting is saying, God, it's all about you. You are more important to me than food. It's all about you. But the hypocrites had made it all about them. It is a crime when we turn something that should be all about worshipping God into something that's all about worshipping ourselves. God sees our hearts and he wants our hearts. So let me ask you this morning, what's your heart like for God? In Psalm 42, it says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. Can you say that? Do you have that desire, that appetite, that longing for God? Can you say, my soul pants for you, my God? John Piper said this in his book about fasting. If we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. If we are full of what the world offers, then perhaps a fast might express or even increase our soul's appetite for God. The season of Lent is coming up in a few weeks' time and Lent has traditionally been at a time when Christians have fasted, giving up the good in order to seek the best. Maybe you're full of what this world offers. I wonder, do you need to give up some of that stuff, whether it's food or phone use, in order to make space for God's? Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Are you in need of some refreshment of soul? Fasting isn't something essential, but it can be really useful. Giving up the good in order to seek the best, to grow and foster in our souls an appetite and hunger for God. A way of saying and enacting the fact that there's something more important in my life 
even than this thing that keeps me alive. So, in conclusion, be careful. Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly in this central section, there is a repeated word, and it's the word Father. Fifteen times through the sermon. Right at the heart of the kingdom that Jesus establishes is a relationship with God as Father. The very center of the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. We're going to look at it next week, where Jesus teaches his followers to pray, Our Father. Jesus calls us to recognize that we live our lives in the presence of God our Father. Our Christian life is an outworking of our relationship with God. In love, he has met us in our need and adopted us as his children. We have the assurance of his full acceptance and approval. And to the degree that we can rest in our Father's approval of us, we would be freed from seeking approval and recognition from others. We need to know we're approved by him, loved by our Father. We don't need to impress others. We don't need the praise of men. It's empty anyway. He sees, he knows, and he approves us. Our Father is the only audience we need, and we're to seek our reward in him. Let's pray. A moment in quiet to reflect. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these words, so timely and relevant. Thank you for your warning to us to to be careful, to guard our hearts and watch ourselves against hypocrisy and people-pleasing, living our Christian lives as a performance. Thank you for the assurance of our relationship with God as the Father who knows us and loves us and sees all we do. We pray that resting in his approval would free us from seeking approval from others, that we would be content to live our lives before the audience of one and to seek our reward in him. We pray in your name. Amen.